It is my great pleasure to announce our new fall study series. At Forest, we have a three regular sermon series in a year. In spring, we study Gospels. In summer, we study Old Testament. In fall, we study the letters of the New Testament. In the past six years, I preached on Paul's letters such as 1 Thessalonians, Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, and 1 and 2 Corinthians. I decided to take a break from Pauline letters for two reasons. One, this is a good time to take a break since we covered exactly half of Paul's 12 letters. And second, the other letters of New Testament are as important and beneficial as a Pauline letters. As a pastor, I try to nourish my congregation with a balanced spiritual food. Now, what do we call these non-Pauline letters in the New Testament? such as James and 1st, 2nd Peter and 1st John and Jude. We call them general epistles, general epistles. Why general epistles? Paul's letters have a specific churches and individuals as its audience, whereas all these letters I mentioned, general epistles, they don't have an unspecified general audience as their readers. So New Testament scholars, they give a name like a, a Catholic epistles. Catholic means universal or general. Among general letters, we're going to study letter written by James. Why do we study Book of James? I chose Book of James for two reasons. First off, this is earliest written book, not only among the general epistles, but also entire New Testament. Entire New Testament. Book of James is a first uh, book. The book of James shows us the glimpses of a New Testament Christians in their early days. As you will see, early Christians had the same human problems and predicaments like us. Sometimes people have a romantic view of early churches and believers like a heroes of a faith, like a Christian version of a superheroes. But Book of James renders us a realistic picture of authentic faith in its struggles and strivings. The greatness of our early Christians was their faithful focus on Jesus in spite of and in the midst of many distracting sounds and voices. Yes. Early Christians, they are truly pioneers of a faith because the New Testament is still being uh, canonized or being written, and they are the political threat. All the circumstantial uh, context was very hard for them. They purely focused on Jesus, and they truly became faithful pioneers for our faith. Second of all, the book of James is very different from Paul's letters. James is a very practical book, whereas Paul is a, a more philosophical and theological. James was known as a wisdom literature of the New Testament. Biblical scholars say James combined the Jesus teaching, especially Sermon on Mount, with the Old Testament proverb in a creative manner. There are many colorful images and anecdotal expressions. For instance, tongue is a small but 
powerful like a wildfire or water of a ship. Life is a brief, like a morning mist that appears for a while, or for a little while, and then vanishes. In Book of James, you will recognize many popular Christian lingos and phrases that people use. While the Book of James does not have a profound and a systematically built theology like Paul's letters, and it is definitely less systematic and less central in terms of its main themes, James offers many practical guidelines that I call evangelical wisdom, the wisdom of the gospel to us. If Paul is known for orthodoxy, which means correct belief, James must be recognized for orthopraxy. And I want to tell you something very important. It's almost a theme of the book of James. That is, you cannot separate orthodoxy from orthopraxy. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy are the two sides of the same coin, or the root and the fruit of the same tree. Look at the James chapter 2, verse 18. James said, Show me your faith without deeds, without words. I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You see that his faith, Abraham's faith here, and his actions were working together. His faith was made complete by what he did. Faith without works is not only dead and useless, but also demonic and dangerous, according to James. Also, work without faith is nothing but deadly legalism. Some scholars think that the theology of Paul and James are antithetical or contradictory because one emphasizes faith and the other one is a good work. You know, people uh, uh, cite uh, uh, Martin Luther, the German Protestant reformer, and his opinion on the book of James. Martin Luther called the James letters of a straw, letters of a straw, meaning letter without substance, letter without substance. And uh, I want us to know two, two facts. First of all, Paul and James, they knew each other. And according to Book of Acts, they met several times. And they shared the same opinion on faith and work during the Jerusalem Council. And they never had any theological disagreement. And second, while Luther recommended James to be a secondary canon of the New Testament, that means uh, something less than uh, you know, the uh, main books of the New Testament. So uh, Luther classified the Hebrews, the Jews, and Revelation and James as a second class of the New Testament. But Luther never rejected the book of James. In fact, he wrote and preached several you know, passages of the book of James. Now, I title our study on James as a working faith because a real faith works. Faith that does not work is not a biblical faith nor a healthy faith. If we claim to have a faith, we can and must show its work. So for this series, we, I picked this graphic. I asked for the graphic. Do we have that graphic? 
Yes, do you see the beautiful mountain reflecting? It's a golden, you know, I mean, it's a sun ray back to the, you know, uh, 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 water, lake. Just like a mountain is a reflection, just like we cannot separate, you know, myself, you know, my shade, work and faith cannot be separated. Faith is always a working faith. And the work is intrinsic to faith. Now, let's learn a little bit about James. Who was a James? New Testament actually mentions the four Jameses. So if you look at quickly, the first James is a very well-known James. James, son of Zebedee and brother of John. And these guys are known for their hot tempers. So they have a nickname, sons of thunders. Now, we don't think uh, this James, uh, brother of John, wrote this book because he was beheaded in Acts chapter 12, way, way before. So he died too soon. The other two James, they're sort of an unknown James. James, son of Alphaeus, another apostle, and James, brother of another uh, apostle named Judas the apostle, not the Judas Iscariot. We don't know much about them, so you know, they are not considered. And finally, James, the half-brother of Jesus. While some modern Scholars are not sure, early church traditions and majority of the New Testament scholars that I know, they say it was a James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the letter. So James, the half-brother, who was it? James was a respected and beloved figure in the early church, especially among Jewish Christians. He was considered the first elder or bishop of a church of Jerusalem. And he was called James the righteous or James the just because it's a faithfulness to the law. And also he was known for prayer. So for his devotion to prayer, his other nickname is a James Carmel Knee. Carmel Knee. Because he prayed on his knee so much that his knee got flattened. Looks like a Carmel's knee. So if you look at this iconography of James, if you compare to other iconography, the painter was focusing on his knee area. Do you see that? You know? And uh, according to early church tradition and also Josephus' writing, James died as a martyr. They took the James on the top of the temple and there he threatened, if you don't renounce Jesus, we will throw you down. And he didn't, and they threw him down to the temple. And somehow he survived, and then Pharisees went down, and they stoned him to death. And while he died, dying, he prayed what Jesus prayed for, his crucifiers. The Father forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So that's the James. Today, our study on James comes from his greeting, James 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Just one verse. You know, last week we studied one chapter. Today you will study one verse. But I'm afraid my sermon will not be shorter than last week. Because this one verse salutation is loaded with a significance. For me, this particular greetings of James reveals a powerful personal testimony about God's grace and truth in his life. Before delving into the text, let me ask you an important segue question. How do you greet? Are you a good greeter? 
Are you a passive greeter or a proactive greeter? By that, I mean that do you greet the only people that you know or do you greet even new people? I want those regular people at the forest to know this. Your simple, kind greeting to a newcomer means a lot more than you can think. Anytime when somebody visits a new church, the newcomer is under pressure and stress. Nothing can take away that uneasy discomfort, uh, discomfort like a someone who greets and uh, welcomes them with a smile. You know, for that reason, mega churches actually train greeters. And uh, I attended a mega church, and the one time I just you know went to one of their training sessions, and there I learned that they train the greeters and they locate them from parking lot to front door to main sanctuary. And they said, everybody come before they sit in the main sanctuary, three or four people will be greeted kindly. Well, in forest, we don't have a separate committee for greeting or welcoming, other than people out there to just everybody writing your names. And then, you know, why? We want everyone to welcome everyone. In forest, we want everybody to be a greeter and welcomer. And here is my confession and observation. You know, when I see a newcomer left alone during the fellowship and see leaders and the members of the church chatting by themselves, I grieve. I almost feel I failed as a pastor. And then other time, I see some of our members, they escort the newcomer from the, at the end of the worship service to fellowship. And then some, sometimes I saw one time they even walk to that person, you know, to the parking lot, to the car. And sometimes this, you know, member took that person to the boba tea. You know, times like that, I feel I'm a very successful, great pastor. You know? Why? You know, Jesus commanded us to love one another as he loved us. You know, that means Jesus wants us to welcome each other as he welcomed us. So I want to tell you, I want to start the sermon. Today's sermon is a simple, I mean, you know, application. Greeting matters. Who you greet first matters. So every Sunday when you come to church, I hope you greet everybody especially newcomer, get to know their names. Now, let me read the greetings of James the Just. James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. In this greeting, we'll focus on the two main facts and the truth. The identity of a greeter, that is James, and intended audience of his greeting. First thing James said about himself was that he was servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ. If I were half-brother of Jesus and I'm writing a letter to Christians, the followers of Jesus, I think I would probably mention my biological relationship with Jesus. Hey, you guys, you know, our Lord and I, we share the same mother, Mary, you know, you know, when I, uh, uh, whenever I, I teach and taught at the uh, 
Venezuelan college student leaders at Escuela Liderazgo Global, the first thing I say is that I'm a younger brother of Emmanuel Kim. And immediately, I receive recognition and trust. Why did James not mention his biological relationship with Jesus? Here, we see an important testimony. James was making a personal confession that his identity was not based on his physical, biological relationship with Jesus, but it was based on his spiritual relationship with Jesus. His identity as a servant of God and Lord Jesus Christ means God's grace for his personal conversion and powerful conviction at the same time. Without God's grace, his biological family connection with Jesus didn't help James much at all. James was a skeptic, not a servant of God, when Jesus started his public ministry. Look at the Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. Coming to his hometown, Jesus began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't, they all, aren't, aren't all his sisters are with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Just like Jesus' hometown, people were surprised and skeptical about Jesus' revelation as a God's Messiah, his own family, including James, were doubly skeptical about Jesus. So let's look at another passage about Jesus' brother's reaction to his ministry. John chapter 7. When the Jewish festival of a tabernacle was near, Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee, go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure, notice, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing this thing, show yourself to the world. And verse 5 tells us, for even his brothers did not believe in him. James was not only skeptical, but also sarcastic to Jesus. He was saying, well, big brother, if you think you are that great, why don't you show yourself to the world? Why? James was uh, too familiar with Jesus. Here, I want us to reflect an important challenge called the danger of a familiarity. Danger of a familiarity. For that, I'm gonna use, uh, I borrow some of the idea from the uh, well-known Texas pastor from San Antonio and popular Christian writer, Max Lucaro. You know, Max Lucaro once almost lost his two-year-old daughter uh, when she accidentally fell into the swimming pool. And this near-drowning accident happened in his own backyard pool. So he realized a familiar place almost became a fatal place. So in his book, God Came Near, 
Lucaro reflected on spiritual danger of a spiritual uh, familiarity in this way. He says, Satan uses, not yet, Satan uses familiarity to deceive and destroy us. Through familiarity, Satan's goal is to, is a nothing less than take what is most precious to us and then make it appear common. Let me repeat that. Satan's strategy through familiarity is to take what is precious to us and make it appear common. When familiarity reduces precious things to common things, it breeds contempt, and contempt corrupts our soul. And this is what uh, 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 Lucaro said. So familiarity, breeding contempt is a clear and present danger. Lives are put in jeopardy because we underestimate the familiarity's threat. Marriage run aground because the menace is ignored. A spirit of gratitude is often absent when familiarity is present. Taking things, people, and God for granted is a work of an enemy. That's why we must work harder at giving thanks for everything, jealously guarding love, prizing people, seeing the big in the small, and worshiping God as our chief joy. We must fear the dawning of a day in life when everything becomes smaller and we lose our capacity to wonder. You know, danger of a familiarity breeding contempt was displayed here when Jesus was rejected, the people of Nazareth. This was his hometown. Yet the people who should have known Jesus best understood him the least. He was a prophet without honor in his own hometown. There was skepticism, even cynicism about Jesus. They reasoned, like Jesus is a carpenter, he's not a miracle worker. You know, he's, he's a Mary's son, not God's son. For them, the glory of a Christ, person and work was hidden behind the veil of ordinariness. Paradoxically, they did not marvel at Jesus. Rather, Jesus had marveled at them because of their lack of faith. Instead of being lost in wonder and love and praise toward Jesus, they were offended by him. Christ was scandal in his hometown because of familiarity, bread, contempt. Those who have lived in proximity to Christ were far from appreciating and understanding him. James was the one who lived closest to Jesus, yet was most cynical. No wonder James did not brag about his natural biological relationship with Jesus. What about us? One commentator said on this, past, on this point in this, to a lesser extent, that can happen even uh, that can even happen after faith in Christ. The pearl of a great price, Jesus Christ, can lose it, his luster. We can lose our taste for the goodness of God. We can lose our first love. The things of God can become a humdrum. We no longer shiver at the thought of a hell, no longer smile at the thought of a heaven. We no longer fawn at the thought of Christ. We have sadly, scarily begun to neglect and take for granted so great salvation and Savior. Today, fight the work of an enemy in your soul that would take what is the most precious, the gospel and Christ, and make it appear common. 
And this commentator quote the first Peter to the to you who believe, he is precious. He is precious. I believe the danger of a familiarity is a more deadlier to those of us who grew up in the church. Those of us especially born and raised in the church, those of us who sin in a church week after week, that familiarity can become a complacency and sometimes it becomes a contempt. Are you grateful for the privilege of a worship and fellowship more today than our last week? Is your appreciation of a life getting a deeper and stronger and bigger each week? Or is this a worship service and even you know, this sermon is just a Sunday ritual to go through? If so, you are in great danger. You are in grave danger. You know, we must really recognize that every relationship here is by grace of God. Don't ever take it for granted. I confess, when I have uh, some difficulties, especially with the people, you know, Satan whispers in my, 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 my ears that, move on, find the new people. People will appreciate you. Move on, move on. You know, fly, fly away from this troubled place or troubled people, or troublemakers. Familiarity doesn't mean they are common. We are familiar with each other, but we came together by grace of God. Amen? Just to, you know, next time you have somebody hard, somebody, you know, make you uneasy in your house church, or even your family, look at them. God brought them to your life. Don't take them for granted. Don't let familiarity with them, you know, ruin your heart for them. So how did James escape the curse of a familiarity? For that, look at the first Corinthians chapter 15. When Paul was listing the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus, he said in verse 6, after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, and most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That means they gave up their life for Christ as a martyr. Then what happened? Jesus appeared to reason, Christ appeared to James, then to the old apostles. Jesus personally sought out James, his younger brother, after his resurrection. You know, I wonder what was their, you know, their, their conversation. You know, James probably said, you're alive. You're not dead. I saw you on the cross. You're alive. And Jesus with a smile, I told you so. You know? Here we must know one important truth. When I discover the identity of Jesus, that's when I develop my true identity. That's what James discovered his identity as a servant of God when he saw risen Christ. My identity comes from Christ's identity. When I find out how much God loved me in Christ, I find 
how precious and powerful I am in God's universe. Do you know who Jesus is? He is the Son of God who took your weakness and wickedness on himself and died for you so that you can have new heart from God and new life and new purpose and new identity. That's the encouragement and challenge for us. Jesus never gave up on anyone, even a skeptic like a James, even a belittling little brother like a James. He kept reaching out to James until the skeptic became a servant of God. You know, James became a truly servant of God because Acts 1.14 said, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with a woman and the Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So from day one, after Jesus ascended to heaven, James and all the family of Jesus joined the apostles praying, and eventually, a little bit later, they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then he began, they began to serve Church of Jerusalem together. And later, when Paul visited Jerusalem, according to Galatians 2.9, Paul called James, Peter, and John the three pillars of a Jerusalem church. And uh, in the Bible, the order of a name means the order of importance. So a husband's name always comes first because husband is more important than wife. Okay? But, so James comes name first before Peter and John means that he is the, actually the top leader of a Jerusalem church. And uh, when you read the first church council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, it was not Peter nor Paul, but it was uh, James who finalized the discussion and formulate the doctrinal, you know, uh, formulate the official document. After confessing his uh, uh, personal conversion as a follower of Christ, James today said his new identity is a what? Servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And according to one well-known you know, uh, commentator, uh, Douglas Moo, he said that is a, one of the very unique uh, expression or complete you know, expression about uh, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, James could have said, I serve Jesus who is God and then, you know, Christ. That's not what he said. He said, I serve God and Lord Jesus Christ. By that, he means, serving God means serving and obeying the kingly uh, authority of Jesus. You know, this actually came from Peter too. When Peter, first sermon on the day of Pentecost, this is what Peter said, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. You know, Lord, Kurie, it means the absolute ruler of the entire Roman Empire. You know, many New Testament scholars think that uh, this Peter and James, their confession of Jesus as a Lord, is eventually that the early Christians to formulate their first confession or charisma public declaration that Jesus is the Lord, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 3. If you take a cornerstone, you learn the full impact of that passage. So, James said, Jesus is the king, and I'm serving the king. 
And what does it mean to serving a king? What is the number one wish of the king? You know what number wish of the, our king Jesus, Lord Jesus? Jesus told the repentant, restored apostle Peter, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. So serving Jesus means serving his people. That's what James was doing. And that is the second point, the intended audience. Who was the intended audience James' letter? They were Jewish Christians under persecution. Look at the Acts chapter 11, 19. Those who had been scattered by persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed by Paul and traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. So James' audience was former members of a Jerusalem church who are now scattered all over the world. The phrase scattered among the nations actually is a one word in Greek, that is a diaspora. And diaspora, or English you know, translation dispersion, is a well-known concept that experience is actually global migration experience of Jewish people. Ever since the you know, eighth century before Christ, and Assyrians attacked and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and then two centuries later, Babylonian you know, conquered the you know, southern kingdom, Judah, Jewish people, they've been migrating all over the world. They called it diaspora or dispersion. And today, Peter, James was saying to my brothers in dispersion, he was talking about Jewish Christians under persecution. And the interesting thing is that Peter kind of copied this James' you know, greeting because Peter 1.1, Peter also, you know, apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect and exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The difference was that Peter was speaking, writing his letter to Gentiles. So he was using this expression of uh, diaspora or scattered around more like uh, figuratively. Just like the people of Abraham, you are scattered because you are away from true home heaven, kind of, you know, figuratively. Whereas when James was using diaspora, he was literally using it. So who is these Jewish Christians? They are persecuted by who? You know, they were persecuted none other than their own Jewish people. They were, their life was threatened by the uh, you know, Jewish people like uh, Paul or Saul, they, they had to flee to the safe places. These Jewish Christians are going through what I call a double marginalization. You know, Jews in general, they are persecuted and uh, mistreated, at least mistreated by Gentiles. That's a known fact. One very side, side but important point is that, you know, Jewish people are known, known they, they, they experience that anti-Semitism throughout their you know, existence, right? And do you know Book of James is another example of, uh, there is a vestige of anti-Semitism? If you look at the New Testament text, what's the name of James? It's not a James, it's a Jacobo, Jacob. Then how in the world did James came here? 
14th century, Wycliffe, when he translated the first English Bible, he used the word James. That is a sort of a anglicized the name Jacob. Interesting thing is that they used the Jacob for patriarch, son of you know, uh, uh, Isaac. But when it comes to James, they changed to from, they changed the Jacob to James. And then, six, then two centuries later, 1611, 11, King James, when he published the official translation of English Bible, so-called authorized Bible, or King James Bible, they kept the name James. Why? Actually, King James' real name, biblically, is a Jacob. King Jacob. But that sounds so Jewish. And the people who know medieval time, anti-Semitism was so high. You know, the, uh, the historian said the, the good, good Friday, after celebrating the Good Friday Mass, Christians, they stopped by a Jewish neighbor and they beat them up, saying that you, Jesus, killer. And then they went home. That was a common. If you wonder about anti, you know, Christian practice of anti-Semitism, just Google Martin Luther and the anti-Semitic, and you will, you will be appalled how horribly Luther degraded the Jewish people. So much so that Nazis actually used Luther's own words. Now, so there is a, a, a person named Mark Wilson, the director of Asia Minor Research Center in Turkey. He actually wrote this uh, uh, article in the biblical archaeology asking people to change the name. So let me read this uh, quote. For this reason, changing English translation of James to Jacob makes a lot of sense. In my lifetime, we have adopted a number of name changes. Bombay to Mumbai, Peking to Beijing, Burma to Myanmar, Rhodesia to Zimbabwe. These changes were soon incorporated by the media as well as subsequent editions of a geographical and historical book. Making such an onomastic adjustment need not to be too difficult in religious circles either. But can such a switch be made practically? Biblical scholars, publishers, would need to agree that continued use of a James is a linguistically indefensible and culturally misleading, and I would add, morally insensitive. So I'm going to change our study, you know, James series to Jacob series, because that's the actual name. That they didn't call him James back then. They called him Jacob. We are the one who changed his name. But point is this. Jewish people have been always marginalized by Gentiles, but today they are marginalized by their own people. It is called double marginality. Speaking about double marginality, those are hyphenated Americans, such as Asian American, Latino American, whatever other American. You understand this better. Because we are not fully accepted by either side. You know, when you go to your ancestors' you know, country, they say, oh, you're from America. You don't speak Korean well or Chinese well or whatever. Oh, you are Yankees. No, my mother called my wife Yankee. She told me that you married a Yankee Paul. She's not Korean, so deal with it, you know. And then 
You know, these are people, we've been, I mean, many of us born and, you know, raised here and the American citizens, but people ask you a question, when are you going to go back to your country? What? California? You know, what are you talking about? Latino Americans understand this better. You know, I had a, a, a Chicano pastor, and he, when he heard me complain, he said, Paul, me too. You know, when I go to Mexican trip, the Mexicans down there, they call me gringos. And when I'm in Chicago, they call me beamer. I'm a Chicano. I, you know, I belong to either. You know, this is a double marginality. And the reason I talk about double marginality is this. Mark my words. Frequently, biblical Christians are persecuted by cultural Christians. That is a fact. Frequently, biblical Christians are persecuted cultural Christians. Christians being marginalized by non-Christian we, we, we know it. We take it. But sometimes it's so, so heartbreaking and shocking that I'm marginalized by fellow Christian. And I've, I've been, the, I, I, you know, I experienced that many times. You know, during 1930s and 40s, German National Socialist Church, a.k.a. Nazi Lutheran Christians, they persecuted the confessional Christians. You know, those who believe that Hitler's promise that I'll make a Germany great again, through the Aryan race, you know, ideology, they exiled many thoughtful, conscientious Christians like Karl Barth and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they collaborated with the genocidal, you know, government. I say this with a heavy heart. I feel it is harder to be a biblical Christian today in 21st century, in 2021, than when I came to the United States 40 years ago. Yes. I never imagined I would be here, this kind of environment, with the many conservative Christians who supported Donald Trump as a, quote, best Christian candidate on one side, and some progressive Christians who see no difference between a socio-political progressive and the biblical Christian peacemaking on the other side. I feel very lonely and discouraged. Does anyone feel deeply concerned and frustrated with the biblical Christianity today being seduced by the right-wing conservative ideal, ideology or left-wing you know, liberal ideology? If you feel that way, let me encourage you with a word of James or Jacob. This is my final word. James 1.2, verse 2. James said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of a many kind. Being a follower of Jesus Christ means you and I will experience many kinds of trials. Many kinds of trials. We'll learn more next week. But James said, take it as a joy. You know why? God's truth is bigger than any trials. His heavenly wisdom will lead us to victory and glory than all the, over all the earthly wilds and human wisdom. Amen?
We might lose to the world, but we will never, never lose for the glory of God. And with Christ, we will be resurrected and we will stand before God's judgment with joy and gratitude. Amen. Let's pray.